Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. But uh, it's kind of cool to see a real relay race. I never ran one, but I've seen people run one. Janie's run those kinds of races before. Uh, so this is the kind the, uh, where a person runs and passes the baton off to somebody else. Does anybody recognize anybody in this picture? Usain Bolt. Okay, this is the track uh, coach's son right up here. So he he knows what's going on. Um so each runner, if you know how a relay race works, each runner runs a, per, uh, a certain portion of the race, and they call that the leg. And so you have typically four, four legs to a race. Is that right? Okay. I'm showing how much I know here. Uh, and, and each person runs their portion of the race. Somebody starts off, and then they get within a certain spot on the track, and they pass the baton off to the next person. And there's a a certain segment of the track in which that can happen. And if you, if you uh, pass the baton off before, too early or too late, uh, and miss that box, you get disqualified. So it's, very, it's a very short uh, opportunity to pass that baton off to the next person. And then finally they give it to the last person. Each runner runs their part of the race, but really they're running one race. Are you with me on that? They're running one race. It's one race. If the team gets disqualified, they don't just disqualify one person. It's the whole team. And if uh, the team wins, even if you're not the fastest person on the team, you win. Usain Bolt at one time, I don't know who's the fastest person in the world now. I think it's me. But at one time, uh, he used to be the fastest person in the world. And how would you like to be the person that follows him? He gives you a boost. You know what I mean? So the picture that we have before us, uh, you realize that first, in order for this race to go well, someone has to start. Someone has to start. There's somebody who starts the race. We could, we could call them, if it weren't racing terminology, we could call them the pioneer, the one that, that begins the race. And then you have your middle runners and then the anchor. Is that right? The anchor is the one that pulls up the very end of the race. And what you want is for each person to run their race well. So as I said, there's this place where the race overlaps. One person's leg overlaps with the next person's leg. In fact, the runner uh, that is going to take the baton starts to run. Even before they get the baton, they start to run. And that person, the other person that's coming behind them, hands the baton off into, in that box. There's only so much time to pass on the baton. And uh, then there is this portion of the race that you have to run for yourself. Nobody else can run it for you. If you're the person passing on the baton, once you've passed the baton off, you can't run anymore. You can run, but it's going to look silly. Uh, but it's not your race anymore. It's the person that follows after you. And uh, a good runner before you can give you a head start, uh, but they can't run the race for you. And if you're a good runner, you can also make up some time uh, ahead of you for those that don't run so well. And each runner uh, has to do their best in order to put the next runner in position to win. So you have to, in addition to that, consider carefully the handoff. So I want you to think about this. You can, uh, you can take 
Usain Bolt away. We have a picture there of him handing off, hopefully in the box, hopefully not disqualified, the uh, baton to the next runner. So anybody read Hebrews chapter 11 before, you know what's there. There's a list of names of people from the Old Testament. We have some of our pioneers of faith going back to uh, to Noah, and we hear a little bit about Abraham and some of the other great figures of faith. And so uh, what happens in Hebrews 11 is it comes to an unfortunate chapter break, and it causes us at times, if we're not careful students of the Word, to put our Bible down at the end of chapter 11 and think, we're done with our chapter for the day, and tomorrow we'll start afresh with something new. But the problem is, is that puts a mental break in a place in Scripture where we're intended to continue the story. At the end of Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that there were all these runners who ran their race. Okay, And then it comes to chapter 12 and verse 1, where we're going to take a look today. It says, therefore, and what do we do when we see a therefore? We ask the question, what it's there for? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who is the cloud of witnesses? Did they come out of nowhere? Hebrews 11, right? Since we're surrounded by these pre-runners, those who've run the, the legs before us, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Uh, and then it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So what God is calling us to is an endurance race, but it's also a relay race, that there are those that have gone before us. We didn't, all this way in Alaska, we didn't become Christians just on our own. Hope you understand that In addition to the work of God, in addition to the work of the Holy Spirit, there have been a chain of people that have brought the gospel down through the ages to us. Can you remember who it was that told you the good news? It's it's awesome, isn't it, to think about that God had a steady line of people all the way to our day, that he connected the chain so that we could come to know him as Lord and Savior. I hope that's exciting to you. Uh, but I, I see that as a way of kind of passing on the baton that that they've offered to us the scriptures and they've shown us the way. And, and as a result of that, we've come to put our faith in Christ. This uh, carrying on of the faith, the, uh, the race that has been laid out before us is a shared responsibility. And if you think about it in terms of this relay race, both the previous and the present runner have to take responsibility for their share of the race. Sometimes, and we live in a, I think we live in a blame culture, in a victim culture, where if something goes wrong, it's somebody else's fault. How many would rather that everything that ever went wrong was somebody else's fault? Wouldn't that be nice? That you never have to take blame for it? You never have to take any responsibility for it? It's all somebody else's fault. I want to, I want to, Uh, affirm that, but I also want to say something else, that there are things that are other people's fault, but we also have a fault in it. Do you you understand what I mean? That while there are things that have happened to us as victims, we also are people who have perpetrated evil in our world. And so I would challenge us that there's a responsibility that we have to take if we're going to run the race that God has set before us. So the runner has to take responsibility for their share when the handoff comes. Do you know, the times are changing fast, and 
there's a cultural shift that's happening. And that presents a challenge to the the presentation of the gospel. Do you understand that, that the times that are changing, they're changing really fast because we've got technological uh, increases that are happening around us. We've got things that, uh, I know I'm 45, and um, childhood looks a lot different now than it did when I was a kid. Can anybody relate to that? How about those that are in their 80s? <laughs> relate to that? It's a little bit different than it was back then. Um, and things change in an increasing rate. It's not just technology that's changing. There's, there's a moral shift that's taking place in our culture. I've been kind of um, marinating in this book by Carl Truman. It's called the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he talks about the shift that's happening in our culture and the, the underpinnings that have caused this shift to take place. And he made, this, uh, he made this note, and it's just one example. It's not the only example, but it's just one example of how culture has changed in a hurry. He said, um, in the early 2000s, the majority of Americans were opposed to gay marriage. And he says, now we're in 2020, and we're getting to the place where transgenderism is normalized. That's a massive shift. And if you follow the argument of his book, what he's saying is that these things didn't happen overnight. Even though there's a fast shift, there was a bunch of things that happened that led up to that. I read somewhere some, some uh, information about both bamboo and mushrooms. Do you know that mushrooms pop up overnight, don't they? Doesn't it seem like that? They do, don't they? Okay. Are you still with me? We've gone from racing to mushrooms to the gospel. But I hear that the conditions that it takes to grow mushrooms takes hundreds of years to develop. And I think that's fascinating, that hundreds of years of underlay brings about something that seems to spring up overnight. And the problems that are going on in our culture, the moral problems, it goes broader than what we've talked about. But the problems really go back to an issue that has um, hundreds of years of history behind it. And so it seems to me that the cultural change in terms of magnitude and speed may be unprecedented. And there is a cultural revolution that's taking place where old beliefs are being questioned and thrown out, and supposedly new ways of living are being embraced. But I want to tell you something that if, if, if you didn't know this already, that the way that we're throwing out Christian values is not progress, it's retrograde. We're going backwards because the things that we're seeing, experiencing, we're saying we're so liberated. We're going back to the way that it was in Greece and Rome. It's retrograde. The gospel came and it, it supplanted some of those things and it, it developed a culture in which uh, truth and justice and right could be practiced, though we didn't ever do it perfectly. There's injustices and there's lies and things that go along with, uh, with any culture because we live in a fallen world. But God's way is the ideal. And so when it comes to these things, I think many people make the mistake that our problem is a political problem. And it's not a political problem. It's a spiritual problem. Are you with me? I think sometimes we turn defensive as the church rather than offensive. Now hear me. Hear my pronunciation. I didn't say offensive. Offensive. Do you know that we have the gospel? We're on the offense we're winning people to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. We're bringing truth and freedom and help. And then we sometimes make the mistake of attacking people rather than ideas. 
and this is part of the uh, tolerance movement, that you can't address an idea without attacking somebody. They feel psychologically threatened. But I think we need to come back to the days of free speech when we can express ourselves and talk civilly about difficult things, don't you? That would be a value to all of us. And then oftentimes we Christians are guilty as well of buying into the cultural lies, the the um, expressive individualism that I'm just me and I just need to express myself. Instead of understanding, Scripture tells us that we are fallen beings and things are not the way they're supposed to be, even in us. Are you with me on that? And so we have to, uh, we have to hear what God has said. We have to change and trust in what the Lord has said and, and follow him. So I'm, I've been interested in, in finding out what causes successful transmission of faith between generations. So when it comes to the difficult things that are going on in the world, I'm not asking us to be mad about it or scared or resentful. You might be, but I challenge you, there's a better way to look at these things. I think we need to be courageous. I think we need to remember the words of the Apostle Paul that in the last time, terrible times will come. And people will be lovers of themselves. And if you stop there, almost everything else that's said following that is expressed. People love themselves. And when we love ourselves, we love other people less than we should. We have to love God first, the Bible says. This is a, a priority switch. It's a paradigm shift from the, the way we are naturally born. We're naturally born. Think about it. Remember when you were born? Remember the sky when you are coming home from the hospital? But when we were born... Somebody, can I get a witness? Somebody down here. Uh, yeah, I remember the sky. You were in the sky before you were born. You, uh, God dropped by a stork. Were you born by a stork? Oh, okay. He's from Texas. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for that help. Where was I going? Oh, yeah. The sky, yeah, the sky. When you're born, um, our parents cater to us, don't they? Like we cry and somebody comes running and says, you got a dirty diaper, changes it. You need fed, feeds you. You need held, right? And we get used to it. Like if we cry, somebody comes and comforts us. That's what it looks like, comforting. But um, what happens after that is that we have to unlearn the idea that the world revolves around us. Because we were born kind of into a system in which, for a period of time, that was the program. The world's about you. And everybody's coming to run to you. But then when we get to be adults, we realize that things flip and we become the one that cares for the others. We have to put aside selfishness. We have to learn to live in a world where we're not the center of it all. And that can be a difficult process of unlearning that, but... um, God wants us to pass on our faith from generation to generation. And uh, oftentimes we fail to see that the problem that we're facing in terms of this cultural shift is that we have cultural amnesia. We forget where we've come from. We forget what God has done. And uh, it seems to me the best remedy for this is a lot of prayer a lot of Bible reading and real Christian thinking. See, when it comes to parenting, we're talking to dads today, and, and certainly all of us, there's some lessons to learn in this, but 
Um, one thing I've noticed is that being godly yourself is your first responsibility as a parent. If, and I'm not a parent, but I'm telling you from being the child of a parent, I, I had parents, I was born to parents. I'm not Melchizedek, right? Um, that uh, from that, I saw that the best example my parents could give me was to be sincere and follow the Lord for themselves. But then I found that in Scripture, that being godly isn't enough. There needs to be influence. Do you understand that some of the best people in the Bible, they may have been very spiritual, but they weren't always good fathers. And if dads aren't consistent in Christian living, uh, doesn't that misrepresent the fatherhood of God? Right? The fatherhood of God is supposed to be reflected from one generation to the other. See, some fathers were heroes to multitudes, but they weren't the best dads. Moses, I don't know if you remember this, but Moses uh, neglected and refused to circumcise or refused to circumcise his boys in obedience to God's command. Do you remember it was Zipporah, their mom, that circumcised the boys? God was about ready to take Moses out. Do you remember that? God was about to take Moses out in Exodus 4, and she did the job that Moses should have done. And he's the most spiritual man in all of Israel. And he wasn't the greatest dad, at least in that situation. Maybe you remember Eli. Eli, in the Old Testament, he refused to discipline his boys. They were sleeping with women at the entrance of the tabernacle. The Bible describes that kind of thing. And, and Eli should have come and put his foot down and said, you guys are misbehaving and we're not going to tolerate it. But he didn't. He let it go on. You can find that in 1 Samuel chapter 2. and 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1 through 5, it's possible that Samuel wasn't the greatest of dad, though we're only inferring that from his, the, his boy's bad behavior. Remember, uh, when, Israel, when Samuel's about to die and Israel needs a new leader, um, the people said, we don't want your sons because they take bribes and they're crooked. They don't have the same sense of justice that you have. So Samuel, being a prophet who's God, God never let his words fall to the ground, was not a great, was not a great dad, it seems. And then we have David. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 6, it talks about Solomon and and you can kind of read a little bit back into this. And I don't mean that we're reading in something that's not there. I mean that as we look at this verse, we can understand how some of these things might have developed. But after David, his son became king and his son was Solomon. It says in First Kings 11 uh, verse 6 that Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Now, I said it's not enough just to be godly. He needed to have influence. And it tells us of Solomon that though he had something of a godly example in his home, that, that Solomon displeased God. He didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He kept room in his heart for idols. He didn't follow the Lord with all of his heart. That's what this means, is that if we're not following the Lord with all of our heart, there's a part of our heart, a part of who we are, that we're giving room to something else. Followed. He didn't follow the Lord with all of his heart. And then he didn't follow a good fatherly example in David. And the verses around this talk about some of the causes and the effects of Solomon's life. But, but this verse comes to the heart issue. He didn't, 
catch the wholehearted faith of his father, David, and it led him down a course of confusion. Here's where it gets interesting, okay, is that David was not the perfect father, and we see it in his behavior. Do you know David sins, right? Everybody know David sins? He was an adulterer and a murderer. And uh, he was not a perfect father. But the thing that's interesting here, even let his boys do things that he should have dealt with, but he didn't. He did some pretty cruddy things himself, David did. And yet, that didn't excuse Solomon from following God. This is what I'm saying is that when it comes to the relay race, you have a father passing on the baton, baton to the next generation, son or daughter. They have to take that up. And they have to run their race. Sometimes dads do great jobs. Sometimes they do a bad job. Sometimes there's no dad at all. So what do we do with that? Does that excuse us from all of our responsibility? We have to take up our responsibility. We have to run the race that's set before us. David was a bad example in some ways. In fact, the Bible says because of his sin, the sword would never leave his house. He was going to face Difficulty within the generations that followed. But Solomon wasn't excused because this verse is an indictment on him. He didn't follow the Lord with all of his heart. No dad's perfect. And I was thinking today what I would say in regards to my dad. My dad's passed on. He's gone to be with the Lord. And um, for the first two or three years, I thought about him every day. And... uh, I I think that almost anything, if I got myself into a situation, I could imagine what he would say. He had those statements. We were talking about this Wednesday night. Do you know when somebody says things over and over again to the point that it gets irritating? He had some statements like that. If uh, you were sleeping, it could be Saturday morning. You're sleeping in, 8 o'clock. He might call you. What are you doing? Well, I'm still in bed, Dad. I heard this so many times. My siblings, they'd be taking a Saturday break, and my dad would call at 8 o'clock. What are you doing in bed? And he'd say, don't you know that people die in bed? Something like that. So, in other words, get up. Get up out of bed. It's fatal to stay there, apparently. (laughs) So, you never felt like you could sleep in in good conscience. But you had things like you had things like that that uh, he would give good advice, and you could remember that in a moment of need. And even now, I can imagine if I'm in a certain situation, what he would say to do. And that's because somehow faithfully he transmitted his faith and wisdom from him to us, and I'm grateful for that. My dad wasn't perfect, but um, one thing is is that he was a man who was consistent in his walk with God. He kept his word. The other thing that he did was I remember one time him telling me his testimony. And that made a huge impact on me. And if you're a dad or a mom, uh, sometimes we can think about everybody else out there that we need to share our testimony with. Have you ever thought about sharing your testimony with your kids? Tell them how you came to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I think that has some power to it. It did for me. One thing I wish my dad had done is I wish he would have been more open in worship. Um, And I see this in men a lot of times, is that we'll let a lot of men, not every man, because there are some guys that uh, they won't let this be them, but 
some guys stand passively and, and worship in a passive way. And for me, um, that kind of example for a while said to me that if you're a man, it's kind of sissy to sing in church. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it's not very masculine to raise your hands and to cry and respond to God in that way. And uh, I I don't think that's what he intended to say, but because of his certain passivity in worship, that's the message I got. And, And I take responsibility for my interpretation of that, but it took me some time. My brother, one time, we went on a missions trip. I was 14. We went to Kentucky. It was hot. You guys are so blessed to be in Alaska. It's cool. Right? <laughs> and uh, my brother said to me, we had a group, and we were getting up in front of this church, and we are going to sing. And I didn't sing because I was going to be manly and not sing. And my brother said, Luke, you're going to get up. He was our youth, the youth pastor that was leading us. You're going to get up on that platform and sing. And if you don't, I'm going to take you out behind the church and work you over. Anybody know what that means? I didn't try to find out because I knew he was serious. So I did. He said, I don't care if you lip sync, but you're going to get up there and look like you're singing. So I did. But in time, God began to change my heart. But I just... I want you to realize that there's the influence that you automatically have by what you do. And that kids are watching, your kids are watching you. And my dad wasn't perfect. I'm thankful, though, that he took the Bible seriously. He took living for God seriously. And he didn't let culture conform him. That's one thing. I had older parents. I was so embarrassed all the time that some of the kids I went to school with, their parents could have been my siblings. They were that young. And I was so embarrassed by the fact that I had older parents. Now I'm so grateful because I didn't get caught up into the, some of the nonsense that some of the other kids, their parents was caught up, were caught up in because my parents didn't care about being culturally relevant. They weren't worried about the latest fashion. They, were, they, were concerned, they weren't concerned about me wearing cool clothes. Anybody go to Kmart? Your shoes were from Kmart. We had tracks. They're the generic Chuck Taylors. Anyway, that all is a part of uh, my parents not caring about looking the part. They cared about authenticity. They cared about substance. And that, I think, came with maturity. We want to be remembered when we're gone, don't we? I think... Uh, Don't you think that parents, if you're a parent, don't you want your influence to carry on to your kids and your grandkids? I think we, we want all of the time and the work and the heartache to amount to something. You know what makes me sad is if I go into a bookstore, used bookstore, and I see a book in the bargain bin, and it hit me one time, somebody poured their life into that. And it's on sale for 25 cents. And that that makes me a little sad and melancholy when I think about the amount of sweat and brain power that went into writing that book. Parents, you're, you're in the trenches. You're fighting. You want your kids to remember that hard work. If you stood by them and you disciplined them when they were being stubborn, I know, I know of one family... They spent all day dealing with a a child whose will would not be broken. 
and they faithfully stood in. And that's work, and it's heartache, and it takes energy, and they need and kids need to be shown that they cannot win. I always knew with my folks, they I cannot win. They will outlast me, and if they have to go to jail, they will win. <laughs> and that did something to me because I know now that I cannot win with God if I fight against Him. Right? His arms are longer or stronger or both? Yes, thank you. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Can't win with him. He can outlast us. But I think we want to we wanna be remembered if we want to have influence in our world. And I think I think that's true for anyone. Uh, I know as a pastor, that's true for me. I I want, even if in some small way, to help change the world here. From where I stand, there are two ways of looking at this. You can look at it as if you're the one who passes on the heritage, which is true. You're going to pass on a heritage somehow. It's going to be for good or bad. Or you can look you can look at it this way, and this is true as well as the one who carries on a heritage. Maybe you're the starter, but are you going to be the one that carries on? If you have folks that have invested into you the good truths of God's word, then it's your responsibility to take the baton and to run your race. Okay, And when it comes time and you hit that box and somebody's standing there with their hand out, ready to receive it, ready to run their race, or they're running already, you need to hand it off the best that you can so that they can run their race well. It's God's call to us. So at one point, you're the runner. At another time, you're the one poised to run, uh, to pass on to one who's poised to run. It's a responsibility to receive, to carry, to pass along what we've received. So what happens in this race if the baton falls well, it's very serious. We could expect that people are going to be lost in their sins. Because the way that people come to know a Savior is because somebody else has shared the message and lived right and shown it. And if you don't do that, you might think it's not that big a deal. Nobody's noticing. Somebody out there is watching. The second thing that could happen is a religion of a different kind will take its place because there is no religious vacuum. Something always comes in and fills it. And even if it's secular humanism or expressive individualism, this idea that we are our psychological selves and we just got to get ourselves out there and express ourselves, it's almost a godlike um, think way of thinking that we're we're the gods and we got to express ourselves. But some religion will take its place. It's a matter of whether that religion frees or enslaves. Third, people will accept a religion of a different kind, and the basis of our right and wrong will lose its footing. Right now, one of the problems we're having in the world is that we've taken away absolute truth, and we've said that there is no such thing as right and wrong. Everybody decides that for themselves. And there's some, there's some element to that that's true. Like, there's a, there's a sense in which God works in our hearts in terms of convictions that are individual, but when it comes to certain aspects of God's truth, they're for everybody. And we, they're non-negotiable. Do you understand what I mean? 
like murder is wrong. It's not a negotiable. It's not like, well, I, I feel like that's okay. It's not. Are you with me? So we have the we have the responsibility of doing that, but what's been taken out from under us, and we don't we don't yet sense it because we're still living in a Christian hangover in our culture. We still kind of follow Christian values to some extent, but the but the the underpinnings have been taken away. And what that's going to lead to is this culture, these lives that are adrift, where we don't know what's true anymore. Right? You can see it. You can see it in our politics. We don't know what's true anymore. You can see it in the the gender confusion that's going on. We don't know what's true anymore. We're adrift. And that's a sad place to be. And somehow I, I think that this comes from the fact somewhere there's a disconnect generationally between what one generation knew to be right to the next generation not accepting that. It goes back to fathers and children. And I'm not laying all the blame on parents because sometimes, uh, many times, parents do the right thing and kids choose something different. It's true. But I think that's all the more reason why Christian parents have to stand up and do their best to love their kids, to show the way to not buy into the nonsense of our world. Let me close this today. We're, we're running out of time here with uh, reading our passage again. Notice uh, there in chapter 12, Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, these are people that have already run their race. They've handed the baton off. Uh, sometimes we think of the Bible story as a bunch of individual stories. It's not. It's one big story. A bunch of people are passing on um, the legacy of faith. Since we're surrounded by them, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Notice uh, in verse 1 there, it gives us uh, one of the reasons, and I, I would suggest to you the last part of chapter 2 is also a reason, but since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, since the baton has been passed, you you run the race. This is telling us the reason that, that a legacy has come down to you. It's come down to you this moment. Even now, if you're you're not getting it necessarily from family, but we're hearing the word of God, and this has come down to us in this moment. So now the baton is being handed off again to us to say, now what are we going to do with what we've been given? The reason is we're, we're surrounded by these, these past runners, past runners in the same race. So what are we supposed to do? Do you know the main verb of this is not all the, the other things like casting off and uh, fixing our eyes, those are all supporting verbs, okay? So in other words, the main verb of this is let us run, let us run. Let us run the race that's marked out for us. You have a race that God has marked out for you. Now, if you want to talk about individualism, here it is, is God has a race for you. It's part of the other race. You're not out there on your own. That's your leg, it's marked out in your way. You need to run that race with the Lord. 
run is the verb. All the other verbs support this phrase. So I'd like you to notice that he says that we ought to run lightly. It's not going to use those words, but it says let's cast off all the uh, entanglements. How does it say it here? Let's cast off every uh, thing that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Okay, so notice this is part of running your race, is getting rid of extra weight. You, you may remember that picture from earlier. Those guys don't put on puffer coats and uh, wear big baggy pants. They're streamlining themselves. They're getting rid of excess weight. The material of their that they're wearing is not made of some kind of heavy, uh, I don't know what a heavy fabric is, maybe polyester. Uh, whatever it is, it's lightweight. It's going to let air through. It makes it easy to run. Get rid of everything. Some guys even shave their legs in order to run in these races. We don't want any anything to keep us from running fast. And I'd like you to notice that there's two things that we're supposed to get rid of if we're going to run lightly. The first is entanglements. This isn't saying anything about sins yet. Do you know there are some things that stand in the way of us running our race that are not sinful? And if you're a, a child who grew up in the church, you like to know where the line is. Like, I can do everything up to the point of where it's sin. And I don't want to sin, but I'm going to get as close to that line as I can because it's fun to live there. Can you relate to that? Come on, church kids. Can you relate to that? Uh, and so what we, when somebody tells us something's wrong, we're like, Where, what's your verse for that? Give me a verse that tells me that's wrong. And that's no way to live in wisdom because some things the Scripture doesn't say, don't do this, but it's wise not to. Right? You can't find a verse that says don't stand in front of trains, but it's not a good idea. So there are things that are in our, that are not wrong. They're not sinful, but they hinder the runner. It's not wrong to wear puffer coats. When it's cold, it's kind of nice. But not when you're running a race. Get rid of that thing. But then it says in the, t- the sin that easily entangles, like we're being wrapped up and held back and kept from running the way that we should because of certain clinging sins keep you from running the race of faith well. Run lightly despite deterrence. I want to tell you something uh, today I was going to put in my notes in spite of, and I found out from the dictionary that that's archaic. You don't say in spite of anymore. It just shows you how old school I am. I felt antiquated. All right. Anyway, despite deterrence, we should run lightly. There are, there are deterrents. There are things that come along. We have to learn to get rid of those so that we can run we can run fast. We need to get rid of the sin. And how we do that easily enough is to come and confess that before the Lord, repent of it, and turn away from it and follow him. And God will give you the power to not sin anymore in that area if you'll trust him and, and walk with him. He'll give you the power to do that. The second thing it tells us is we're to run steadfastly. Okay, this is going to go quick, so don't get uh, worried. You guys talk too long. That's the problem. No. Um, run steadfastly. And, and this we do despite difficulties. The word that's used here in the Greek means uh, to, to continue to, to bear up or to do something despite the difficulty. 
Okay, so we keep doing it. We keep running, even though it's hard. When I was in seventh grade, um, I went out for cross country because my pastor was the coach at our school. He was the cross country pastor. And so any good kid in the church who goes to that school should be on the cross country team. So I did. I didn't get the greatest shoes. They're from Kmart till later. <laughs> and um, he said, this is what we're going to do. And we went and we trained a little bit. I had no idea what I was in for. Most of my childhood was spent running small sprints from here to there. Like you're being chased or you're chasing somebody or you're trying to get away from a dog or whatever. But then uh, this cross-country race came, and I don't think he trained us well enough. (laughs) They marked out our race on a golf course. And when it came time to run, they shot the pistol, and I took off. In a sprint, I was doing pretty good. I'm keeping up with the first few guys. And then it hit me. Anybody get that pain underneath your rib cage? And I wanted to throw up. At one point, I think I remember sitting down on the on the golf course. And my friend Mark Minnick came along and he said, Luke, you got to get up. You got to run. And I remember the coach saying, even if you aren't running, keep walking in the direction of the finish line. I learned something about endurance. Got along a little further, and some of you know that story that you got you get near the finish line, and all of a sudden the adrenaline kicks in. I'm like, I don't know what place I'm in, but I'm going to beat that guy. And so I did. I took off running, and I beat that guy. And here's the sad He cried because I beat him. But the whole thing is it's a steadfast steadfast race. We have to run despite difficulties. There are going to come difficulties in following Christ. We're going to have the opportunity to be offended at people. And when we get offended, we could just say, well, I'm just religion. It's not for me, if that's what the people are like. Well, those same kind of people are out in the world doing non-religious things too. So there's nowhere you can go and not be offended. So it's better be offended in the church where at least we put on the pretense of being nice. I'm just kidding. God expects us to forgive and to love one another and get over those things. So we run steadfastly, and finally we run attentively. Despite distractions, there are things here and there. There are things out there around us that want to pull our focus away from Jesus, but we're to look to Jesus, the author and finish our faith. It uses the the phrase, fix your eyes, that's to, to set our gaze in a particular direction, to fix it, where we're not going to let other things take us away from where God is leading us. Um, and it's to Him. Okay, So you've been handed the baton by someone. It's time for you to run your race. If you're a dad, you need to run your race, not just for you, but for your kids and grandkids. You need to run it for Jesus. You need to run it for the world. Not so you can get the world's approval, so you can win the world. Do you know, it sounds kind of silly talking about a race, because that seems like a trivial thing we watch for entertainment, but some of the best races in the world were originally races that had purpose to them. Think of the Iditarod, how in 1925, diphtheria in Nome broke out, and they needed serum. And so somebody mushed through the snow, almost a 1,000 miles to get to Nome 
and to bring the solution that was necessary. In 490 BC, the first marathon was run by a guy who was coming from Marathon to Athens. He ran around 26 miles in order to bring news that the Athenians had beat the Persians and everybody could celebrate and know that we won the war. So we need to run. We need to run with purpose, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher. And what that means is that he started it. He's the originator and the pioneer, and he's the one that will see it through. But we have to do our job. We have to run. If you're a dad today, you, you need to be a runner. And if you're a kid today, you need to take the baton that's passed on to you. You need to take the baton and run with it. Because it's not just you that matters. The whole world is looking to a generation, a new generation of kids that will follow in the footsteps of faithful fathers and mothers. So I want to challenge us with that word today. Thanks for your gracious attention. Why don't we stand? Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.